0: Welcome to episode one of COVID on the Brain. In this episode, you're gonna be taken on a journey of how the virus can get into the brain, what it can do to the cells of the brain once it's in there, and ultimately the impact of that on brain function. In this episode, there's a fascinating interview with Dr. Shibani Mukherjee. She's an assistant professor of neurology at the Harvard Medical School. An Associate Director of the Neuroinfectious Disease Unit at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Mukherjee is going to talk about what she's seen in her patients after they've had COVID,
1: the effects on their brain, and ultimately the effects on function and cognition. Join me as we enter COVID on the brain. <laughs>
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast brought to you by the first-year students of the Neuroscience Graduate Program at McMaster University, located in Ontario, Canada. Throughout this mini-podcast series, we'll be discussing topics related to the effects of COVID-19 and the brain. For our first episode, we'll be covering the neurobiology of COVID-19. Joining me today will be Miranda and Katie. Thank you both for being here today.
1: Hi, Andre. Hi, Andre. Thanks for having us.
3: COVID-19 isn't our first encounter with a respiratory viral outbreak. There was SARS back in 2003 and MERS in 2012. COVID-19 is caused by the novel SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, and although it is considered a respiratory disease, the virus can also affect other bodily systems. There's rapidly accumulating clinical evidence revealing atypical symptoms of COVID 19 that involve neurological signs, including headaches, anosmia or loss of smell, nausea, and impairments like memory loss and lack of concentration. For the longest time, these symptoms baffled scientists and doctors alike. Not only were they highly variable and inconsistent within the clinical population, They were incredibly diverse, afflicting everything from basic senses to higher cognitive function. With stories popping up in emergency rooms across the country, ranging from agitation and delirium to hallucinations and encephalopathy, concern was on the rise. There was little the medical community could do beyond treat these sequelae as secondary effects of immune stress and psychological trauma.
1: But more and more research is slowly transforming the clinical perspective on COVID-19, suggesting that these patients' symptoms may not just be in their head, but rather the virus itself or the disease it causes could actually be damaging the brain. That's really not an encouraging thought, considering many probably think this virus is bad enough as is. But what does the science say? And so in this episode of Inside the Mind of COVID-19, We are going to delve into the neurobiology of this virus with an up-to-date research snapshot of how SARS-CoV-2 could directly infect or indirectly affect the brain.
2: So the two of you recently spoke to an expert clinician and researcher, Dr. Shibani Mukherjee, and we will be listening to clips from your conversation with her earlier this week, where she provided you with her insight on COVID-19 and the brain.
3: Yes, that's right. Dr. Shibani Mukherjee is an assistant professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and associate director of the Neuroinfectious Disease Unit. She has dedicated her career to the understanding of the neurological complications of viral infections, specifically focusing on HIV infection. As one of the few providers who clinically specializes in seeing patients with infectious diseases and neurological complications, She's worked closely with colleagues, patients, and their families to understand the neurological needs of those with COVID-19, both during the acute and chronic phases of the illness. She grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, loves the national parks, and recently started taking biking more seriously now that her seven-year-old can
1: crush her on long rides. Hi, Dr. Mukherjee. Thank you so much for being here today.
0: Thanks for having me, Katie and Miranda.
2: I'm excited to discuss Dr. Mukherjee's insight into the neurobiology of this virus. But before we dive into that, let's start with the basics. To make sure all our listeners are on the same page, we're going to start off this episode with a crash course in SARS-CoV-2 Neurobiology, what we know about the virus and the models we use to study it.
3: Since the first case of COVID-19 was reported about a year ago in December, 2019, researchers have worked hard to understand the fundamentals of the virus, such as its structure, replication, and transmission. SARS-CoV-2 has a crown-like structure, hence the name coronavirus. The viral RNA is enclosed in a spherical structure made up of proteins and a lipid membrane. There are spikes on the surface, which are S-proteins that bind to receptors in our body. Specifically, they bind to the ACE2 receptor, which normally helps regulate blood pressure. After binding to the ACE2 receptor, the proteases, furin and tmprss 2 cleave the S-protein. This allows the virus to fuse to the cell membrane and the viral RNA enters the cell. Once the RNA is in the cell, it uses its own RNA polymerase to replicate the viral RNA and uses the ribosomes in the cell to translate proteins which help create a protective vesicle. This membrane then fuses with the cell membrane and releases the virus. Each cell releases hundreds of viral copies which can either infect other cells or be exhaled into the air.
1: So this information about the structure of the virus and its receptor interactions has set the foundation to develop different model systems which have helped to investigate the transmission, pathogenesis, and disease progression of SARS-CoV-2 on the brain.
3: Yes, and a lot of the work to understand SARS-CoV-2 replication and pathogenesis was done in cell models. While epithelial cells were used for most of the initial work, such as identifying ACE2 as the host cell receptor, The effects of the virus on the brain are investigated using neural progenitor cells. Studies have shown that SARS-CoV-2 is able to replicate in these neural progenitor cells and that infection leads to more cell death.
1: And so those were all critical findings, but the brain is a complex organ and cellular models often limit the conclusions. Which is why some researchers started using organoids, which are these super cool 3D tissue models derived from stem cells. And the advantage to using organoids is that they can self-arrange into tissues that resemble the structure, cellular complexity, and some functions of an organ. It's, It's really cool. So, brain organoids have been used to show viral tropism of cortical neurons, but not neuronal stem cells. And it was also observed that SARS-CoV-2 co-localized with phosphorylated tau, which suggests early neurodegeneration-like effects.
3: It's fascinating how much we can understand about the virus from cells or mini-organs in a dish. But, preclinical animal models are important when it comes to understanding the physiological effects of the virus and testing therapeutics or vaccines. While mice are a good preclinical model for many disorders, the different structures of the mouse ACE2 protein has reduced viral tropism in mouse tissue. So, humanized mice or transgenic mice which express the human ACE2 protein are used to study SARS-CoV-2 infection. The brain has been reported to express ACE2 receptors That have been detected over glial cells in neurons. Studies using these mice have shown that ACE2 is expressed in the cell bodies of neurons and they were used to study the transmission of SARS-CoV-2 in the brain. Other animal models used include golden Syrian hamsters because they've been shown to be more predictable and stable animal models than mice. Non-human primates, especially rhesus macaque monkeys, are also promising models because they have an identical ACE2 receptor to humans.
1: Alright, so that's a lot of information to take in, but we we just really wanted to make sure we gave you a quick overview of everything you'll need for our upcoming discussion of the neurobiology of COVID-19. But if you want more information, we've posted some links and resources on our webpage that you can refer back to as needed.
3: Yes, and when we come back, we'll dive right into our interview with Dr. Mukherjee and put all this new information to use. So, now that we've got the basics under our belt, let's dive right into their application to our current COVID conundrum, starting with a bit of perspective on how this all got started.
2: I think the burning question on everyone's mind is, did clinicians and scientists like Dr. Mukherjee see this coming, or did it catch them completely off guard, just like many of us who are only starting to understand the potential neurological risks?
3: Well, that was certainly a question on our minds too. And so the first thing we did was ask Dr. Mukherjee to put this whole thing in context for us from the viewpoint of a neurologist on the front lines of both research and the clinic. This is what she had to say.
0: I spend a lot of my time working with people who are infectious disease specialists. And we attend, or at least I attend, infectious disease conferences. And I think it was in that infectious disease conference when the biothreats team on our end started to talk to the infectious disease people. And in that room, I'll tell you, there's some really prominent individuals. And the, one of the more prominent individuals is actually Rochelle Walensky, who's now the head of the CDC. So she was the head of the Mass General Infectious Diseases Unit. And so in that room, people were talking about this sort of new novel coronavirus. And it was the fact that they were taking it so seriously that gave everybody else pause. Some things that individuals were saying, like, this is the same as the flu virus, or it's not going to be that bad, or people are talking about death rate at the time, and it's, it's going to be under 1%. All of these discussions and trying to minimize, in that room, no one was minimizing it. And I think that it was an important lesson. The the time that it really actually honed in very heavily was on a call I was on in January 30th, and I remember it. The bio threats pager was being held by a colleague of mine, and we had been doing another project. And she said, "You know, I, I'm not going to be able to make our meeting because my pager is going off so frequently." And at that time, we were in Boston. Our first case would not be for another six weeks later but her pager was going off because people were recognizing that Washington state was really going through some of their epidemic or, and they were concerned. People are starting to really get concerned in the United States and Europe by that time was really obviously having trouble. And so the, the fact that she couldn't be on and, and I said to her, you know, how bad is this? And she said, you know, this is a disease that no one on the planet has immunity to. So it has the potential to be enormous. And I think ultimately, she's not one for hyperbole. And so when she says that this could be something on the order of enormous or catastrophic, that's when you really start to pay attention. And I think that's really when I started to realize that we should think about what are the manifestations of this disease? What do we know from SARS? that we might need to think about? Is there some history that we can understand? Should we look forward to neurological disease? So I think that was probably where I started to understand the gravity. And it was probably in late January, very early February, that we started to recognize that we should pay attention.
2: Wow. It seems like they were already anticipating this potential problem very early on.
0: Exactly.
3: Which is kind of crazy when you think about it. These kinds of meetings were going on with infectious disease experts from all around the world. All at about the same time, we here in Canada were still thinking this whole outbreak would be over before summertime.
0: I think the first was when BioArchive had a paper. The first author was Mao. It was a case series of three hospitals in Wuhan that had described neurological symptoms. They had gone through characterization, but ultimately their point was about a third of individuals in an acute hospital setting had neurological symptoms. And that was extraordinarily high to have something that would have that degree of neurological symptoms. I think we were all surprised. And I would say at first, frankly, skeptical. One of the things though, that we recognize is it's pretty much of a numbers game. Let's just say that neurological symptoms are only, let's say 1%, but a million people get infected, that's 10,000. That's a huge number. Now you take it on a global scale and let's say a billion people get infected. You can imagine what that 1% would really mean, even if you say ultimately 1% is super low. And I understand if you're, you know, restricting it to an acute hospitalization at that time, we really weren't sure what these percentages really meant, but a third of a population in in a hospital setting, that is an enormous number if you're going to have a disease that can affect so many people, that you're going to be inundated with hospitalizations. And so I think a little bit was a numbers game. We estimated that a third was a little high, but that we wouldn't be surprised potentially if it were a 10% range, then maybe we should really think about how we should prepare our inpatient consult teams. Because we were at that point, February, March, New York was now getting involved. We're not far from New York. And so we knew that our wave was coming in and we could hear from our New York colleagues that they were just getting inundated and there were neurological symptoms, but no one really was able to characterize them so quickly or so well. But if they were anything like what we're hearing about in Europe, that we knew that will be also inundated as well. So I think it was at that point numbers game. But if you even took a range, again, 10% to 30, it was a large number considering how many people were going to be hospitalized.
2: A third of patients is no small amount.
3: Right. Even considering a small sample size, that's a disturbing proportion.
2: So what happens next?
3: Well, of course, as this new clinical data was coming to light, molecular neuroscience researchers all over the world were scrambling to develop sound models so that we could investigate the underpinnings of these neurological symptoms. This was really when a lot of the animal models and in vitro assays we mentioned earlier were being developed and implemented to dig into those molecular mechanisms. But then, as the months went by, some scientists started seeing some pretty freaky results.
2: What do you mean, Miranda?
3: Well, their experiments demonstrated that it might not just be the disease the virus causes that affects the brain, but that the virus itself might actually get inside the brain. Whoa. Now, I know this might sound like something out of a horror movie or a sci-fi show, but let's take a step back. It turns out that many viruses, even those that affect multiple organ systems in the body, display this odd and freaky property. Viruses of this kind are called neurotropic, with the neuro prefix referencing neurons, meaning that they can preferentially infect tissue in the central nervous system.
2: I'm guessing this can spell bad news because neurons can act as vessels for viral replication and thus brain tissue can be damaged in the process.
3: Exactly. So to make this whole concept a little more concrete, I want to walk you through a preprint from September of last year, which was among the first to publish this finding. It was work done out of the Iwasaki lab at Yale Medical School, and I think it's a great illustrative example because it combines different methods and models.
2: Okay. Take it away.
3: Okay, so there are three main components to the paper involving three different models. The first set of experiments started with brain organoids.
2: You may recall A brain organoid is essentially an artificial mini-brain grown by culturing pluripotent stem cells in a bioreactor. These brains actually develop different neuronal structures and allow for researchers to study the brain in a controlled, simplified setting.
3: Right. In this case, Dr. Iwasaki's team wanted to infect these organoids with SARS-CoV-2 virus to see what effect it would have, if any, on neurons. To start, The team set out to prove that neurons express the ACE2 receptor necessary for viral entry. Through immunofluorescent staining of the organoid tissue, they showed that this key receptor protein actually displayed widespread expression in neurons. With these receptors sitting out in the open, these cells would be a prime target for the virus. And in fact, the team demonstrated that SARS-CoV-2 readily infects and spreads throughout neuronal tissue the virus seemed to localize to densely populated areas of the cortex, inducing widespread cell damage and death wherever it went.
2: Okay, so clearly the virus has potential to damage the brain. But the real question is, and I assume many listeners are wondering as well, how does the virus end up in the brain anyway?
3: Well, we'll discuss that more in depth later. As it turns out, scientists have actually proposed a whole bunch of ways by which the virus might gain access to the CNS. But this paper tested some of these roots in the next phase of the experiment, which attempted to replicate the organoid infection in a living organism, humanized mice.
2: You'll remember that these mice overexpress the human HD receptor, making them a great living system for exploring the infectious potential of the virus in us.
3: Right, which made this an important translational step between a brain in a dish to a live human being.
2: So in this model system, How did they go about testing their initial findings?
3: They administered the virus to the mice in one of two ways. Intranasal administration of SARS-CoV-2, that is, essentially pumping the virus up the nose, or intraventricular injection, depositing virus directly into circulating CSF. They then measured the amount of virus present in the brain using a combination of real-time PCR and fluorescent labeling of the viral capsid protein. They observed increased viral titers in the brains of mice in a bunch of different brain regions, including many sensory areas of the cortex.
2: Okay. Based on that, it looks like this experiment showed two routes by which SARS-CoV-2 may enter and affect the brain. But are there others? Also, how are these methods relevant to the real world? Sure, we are exposed to the virus, but I'm not directly inhaling the virus or injecting it into my brain.
3: Fair enough. But when it comes to real-life analogs, turns out intranasal and interventricular injections actually fall into two of the three main proposed categories for the virus's neuroinvasive strategies. In the first pathway, namely the neuronal route, viruses can invade from the endings of peripheral nerves that communicate sensory signals from all different parts of the body back to the central nervous system. There's a pretty solid body of evidence that some coronaviruses might initially infect peripheral nerve endings, and then enter the central nervous system through a synapse-connected route. This process generally comprises two key steps: axoplasmic flow, in which the virus is transported along the axon, followed by transsynaptic transmission, in which a virus can cross the synaptic cleft between neurons to infect a neighboring cell.
2: That makes sense. So then essentially a virus could keep up this game of neuronal leapfrog all the way up give a given nerve tract to the brain.
3: Precisely. And depending on the nerve infected, it might only have a couple jumps to make. This seems to be the case in the context of intranasal inoculation, in which the virus is thought to target the brain through the olfactory nerve, which is involved in transmitting odor signals to the brain. Initially, the virus was thought to first infect the olfactory cilia, which are actually just the axons of olfactory neurons protruding into the nasal cavity. It then travels up the axons of these same neurons, which bundle together in the olfactory nerve and terminate on the brain's olfactory bulb. From here, the virus can then proliferate into other highly susceptible regions of the cortex and other areas associated with olfaction, such as the hippocampus and the amygdala. And scientists really liked this theory initially. That's because if the virus messes with the olfactory epithelium, it could help explain one of the most common sequelae of COVID-19, namely anosmia, which, as we mentioned before, means a loss of smell. However, as more information came in, this initial hypothesis did come under fire.
0: So the majority of individuals will have anosmia, which is, it's well described in people who are not hospitalized during their more acute uh, infection than it is in the hospitalized cohort. But nevertheless, anosmia is probably the most predominant symptom that people report consistently and globally. So what is there? So that has been a high debate of whether or not that can be a source of or a route where the virus could potentially enter the brain. The olfactory mucosa and nasal epithelium does have a connection to the olfactory bulb. There are a variety of mechanisms to block viral entry, but axonal spread through some transaxonal system is theoretically possible. The mechanisms uh, for SARS-CoV-2 have not yet been identified because the olfactory sensory neuron does not have the receptor ACE2 or tmprss 2 which are the most- known receptors for SARS-CoV-2. And so without that mechanism of entry, people have hypothesized that maybe there's another one, but people have more debated on whether or not the sensory neuron itself could actually be infected. So there was a famous uh, nature neuroscience paper that argued that it is possible in human, um, although rare, Hamster models and mouse models, people are going back and forth on whether or not they can find it or see it. The olfactory mucosa is actually quite complex, as you can imagine, since our sensory systems are actually very, very highly evolved and itself complex So there are a variety of support cells. Those can get infected, but the neuron itself, in order to give you the mechanism to enter into the brain, has not been definitively shown.
3: And while the olfactory nerve is a strong candidate, the same principle is thought to apply to other nerves in the body, such as the trigeminal nerve and the vagus nerve that innervates the gastrointestinal tract and the respiratory system.
0: So there is one way, obviously, through the nasal passages, and so maybe through transaxonal spread through the olfactory nerve. There's just now a recent report again on Bayer Archive, and we'll wait till a review, and it's published. But ultimately, it doesn't look like, at least in that hamster model, they don't see the olfactory sensory neuron being affected and then having transaxonal spread through there. What was interesting though in the human case and that you may potentially be able to see in the hamster is the glossopharyngeal nerve. So these peripheral cranial nerves, so the vagus can get infected and that is less unclear. You can sort of see much more definitively.
3: So, while all of these routes are plausible, when it comes to which axon highway to take, the virus certainly has plenty of options, given the variety of cranial nerves that innervate the respiratory tract and other mucosal barriers.
2: Okay, but what about the injection of the virus into the ventricles? That doesn't exactly seem like something that would be relevant to the average person. How would that allow viral access to the brain?
3: Well, recall that the ventricles contain cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF, and similar to the blood-brain barrier we already discussed, there's also a blood-CSF barrier that forms a key interface between the brain and circulation. In fact, due to the intimate relationship between CSF and the brain, the CSF is frequently tested to look for signs of viral entry into the central nervous
0: system, as Dr. Mukherjee explained during our conversation. So you can look at spinal fluid, which is a proxy. Spinal fluid bathes the brain. Our brain does have its certain systems where it will produce factors that are then either dumped into the spinal fluid, for lack of a better term, and you can use the spinal fluid as some sort of proxy of what's going on in the brain as its function. Sometimes you can identify virus there, and you can do it by two mechanisms. Commonly, people will look for nucleic acid, so an RNA. Sometimes people will look for DNA. Otherwise, people are also looking for the host response, so an antibody, assuming that the antibody was produced in some way in relationship to a virus that's inside the brain, if they find it in spinal fluid, more than what they find it in the blood.
3: This CSF flows throughout the brain via the glymphatic system, from which the virus may be able to penetrate the surrounding epithelium and enter the neurons on the other side. Now, obviously, in real life, no one is getting anything injected into their ventricles, but scientists think the virus can enter the CSF via various immune tissues, also known as lymphatic tissues, such as those present in the nasal mucosa, the conjunctiva of the eyes, and even the oral cavity.
2: Okay, that's two out of three. But you mentioned the third route.
3: Yes, and this is one that wasn't really tested in Dr. Iwasaki's experiments. In this route, the virus enters the CNS through the blood, also known as the hematogenous route. And within this
0: category of infectious strategies, there are a couple ways to make the leap from blood to brain. Common type would actually be hematogenous spread in terms of thinking about ways and mechanisms. So it could be that a transient viremia does allow for virions to enter into the CNS. That's the mechanism that's thought to be something that we would see for quite a few viruses. The second mechanism within that is that a virus can infect immune cells. So this is the most traditional that we think about for HIV, where there's actually a Trojan horse. So instead of a free virion just hanging out in the blood, entering into the CNS, something that you might see for, let's say, bacterial infections, and you can create an abscess or seed an abscess. Essentially, for HIV, one of the most common mechanisms hypothesizes is that their infection of either a monocyte or a lymphocyte actually gains entry into the CNS, and then they infect resident cells, and that's how you can establish a productive infection.
2: So Dr. Mukherjee is saying that the virus can either enter directly from the blood or hijack our immune cells to gain special access to the central nervous system?
3: Exactly. This again comes back to the concept of our blood-brain barrier that protects our brain from all the substances in circulation. Scientists believe that the virus can breach this barrier in a few ways. The first is to directly infect the epithelial cells of the blood-brain barrier and pass right through, which may also be facilitated by the fact that inflammation can disrupt the blood-brain barrier and make it more permeable. We'll discuss this more in the next segment. The second is a bit more interesting. Instead of busting through the wall, SARS-CoV-2 can infect circulating immune cells in the blood, such as leukocytes. These cells are allowed to squeeze between the endothelial cells of the blood-brain barrier, and once they're infected, the virus can use them as a Trojan horse to piggyback its way into the brain.
2: Okay, so we've established that the virus has quite a few options to choose from when it comes to making it into the brain. But what does this mean once it gets in? You mentioned that Dr. Ozaki's results suggest that the virus is not exactly uniting nice neurons. But what does this mean for the brain at a regional level?
3: Well, they did end up finding the virus in multiple brain regions post-inoculation, using a combination of real-time PCR and fluorescent labeling of the viral capsid protein. These included high viral titers in the forebrain and heterogeneous regions of the cortex, largely in columnar patches and in sensory regions. Interestingly, they found no virus in the cerebellum and at very low levels in other structures like the basal ganglia. This was also true in the final component of this paper, where staining for viral spike protein in post-mortem tissue of human patients confirmed the presence of viral particles in a whole bunch of neuronal cell types.
2: Interesting. But how could this infection be linked back to the symptoms?
3: Well, this certainly isn't the only study that looked at potential distribution of the virus in the brain. Other research has also found that the virus might target various areas in the brainstem which is where most of those cranial nerves connect to before the signal is transmitted up to the rest of the brain. For example, another study using humanized ACE2 mice by Zhang and colleagues showed extensive staining against the viral capsid protein in several brain regions, including the cortex, the thalamus, the hypothalamus, and the ventral striatum, while similar work by Golden and colleagues confirmed these findings, along with viral presence in the medulla, pons, and midbrain. This has been corroborated as well by some autopsy studies on human patients.
0: People have focused quite a bit on brainstem, so pons, uh, medulla as well. People have also focused heavily on frontal lobe. Most of the findings that people have identified are hypoxic ischemic areas that you'll identify in both frontal. You will find also in brainstem. Other pockets in the hippocampus have also been identified.
2: What's so special about these particular regions?
3: Well, in terms of the cortex, we know this is the brain area largely responsible for higher cognitive function. So viral infection here might disrupt more complex brain processes. When it comes to the brainstem, as well as areas like the pons and medulla, you don't need to know all the specifics of what these brain regions do, but the important implication here is that damage to these regions disrupts what are called autonomic functions. These can include things like heart rate, breathing, balance, and appetite.
2: Interesting. So what might that look like in patients?
3: Dr. Mukherjee explained that there are some clinical symptoms that amount to exactly what you would expect if these areas were damaged.
2: Second
0: set of symptoms include things like dizziness and headache and fatigue, whether it be generalized malaise or cognitive fatigue. The other symptoms that people report would potentially be part of the autonomic symptoms or system Dizziness could be part of that, but autonomic difficulty, so heart rate variability.
3: And we should note that symptoms don't necessarily indicate viral infection of these brain areas per se, given there are other ways the disease might damage the brain, as we'll see later on. But it is certainly interesting to see the coincidence of neurological symptoms and studies demonstrating viral infection in the brain areas that are thought to mediate the functions being disrupted.
2: So it seems like we don't just have multiple available means of viral neuroinvasion, but also some pretty strong circumstantial evidence that the virus infects all the right brain regions to produce the symptoms being reported. I'd say this is a case open and shut. However, Dr. Mukherjee did mention that the evidence for these routes of neuroinvasion and direct brain infection isn't completely one-sided.
3: That's definitely the case. I touched on the Uwazaki lab study because it offered a good overview of different aspects of neuroinvasion and how it might occur, as well as some direct measures of viral presence in the CNS. But just like with any question in science, the best way to go about finding answers is to corroborate findings in multiple model systems and experimental conditions. And while the study definitely provided an important step towards our understanding of SARS-CoV-2 neurotropism, Not every study has reached similar conclusions. Like Dr. Mukherjee explained, some studies in hamsters have reported slightly different results. For example, another study from Diaz de Mello and colleagues reported finding viral particles in the olfactory neurons and olfactory bulb of hamsters intranasally administered the virus, but not in any other areas of the brain. There's also the question of how applicable and biologically relevant these inoculation methods are to human patients, as Dr. Mukherjee also explained.
0: I think animal laws are fabulous because it's one of the ways we can try to dissect what is potential. Obviously, it's not going to be perfect to the human scenario, but I think they're very important. The hamster as well as mouse models use an inoculum that's directly applied into the nasal passage and it's usually applied sort of upper nasal airway, you have to make sure that the inoculum amount is not so overwhelming that, for example, an animal swallows virus, for example, and then you can have an entirely different mechanism of viral entry you know, through the gut that may or may not be actually true for a human. And it's also true that most humans do not inhale that much inoculum for a virus, right? So it's it's not to that degree. However, what I think is extremely important is you know, how much it can recapitulate lung pathology in this case, again, as a respiratory pathogen. And it also can show a little bit what is potential. So how much is required sort of to break certain barriers, for example, into the CNS. So yes,
3: as compared to post-mortem studies, animal experiments have provided detailed information on the neuroinvasive potential of SARS-CoV-2 and its potential targets in the central nervous system. Still, as with many other animal models, The experimental results from animal models of SARS-CoV-2 infection can't be simply generalized to all human beings. This discrepancy is made especially clear when you look at the human autopsy data of COVID-19 patients, and things get a lot more inconsistent very quickly. A lot of these studies implement similar methods of testing for the virus in the brain, including the proxy of cerebral spinal fluid, which certainly has some mixed reviews.
0: Otherwise, people are also looking for the host response, so an antibody, assuming that the antibody was produced in some way in relationship to a virus that's inside the brain, if they find it in spinal fluid, more than what they find it in the blood. So those are two of the most common ways in spinal fluid. So we'll stick with that just theme for right now. For right now, we're left with a lot of the literature, which reports, and there are biases, but reports any findings in spinal fluid. There's a little over 350 cases that have been reported in the literature. Only approximately 5% of those, anywhere from 16 cases, 18 cases, have been identified with a positive RNA test in the spinal fluid. The problem or the challenge with those cases is that they're not usually well-described We don't always have a lot of identifying features or information about them. And a challenge with RNA testing is that if for whatever reason blood is introduced and the blood has some RNA, then you're actually just surveying blood. You're not maybe surveying what's going on in the spinal fluid. But in general, for the number of people that are getting a lumbar puncture, so a lot of these individuals have neurological symptoms and they have covid The vast majority, so it's a 95%, comfortably do not have evidence of RNA despite having an abnormal brain MRI or having symptoms. So that leaves it less for the RNA. People are trying to understand the antibody response, and there's a lot more mixed data there.
3: And then there's the methods of biopsy and autopsy, which, as Dr. Mukherjee explained, can have equally many confounding variables and have also produced inconsistent results
0: across studies. When it comes to then trying to figure out if it's inside the brain, you're left with a lot of challenges that's not spinal fluid. So you're left with trying to find it in brain biopsy or then an autopsy. So you need brain tissue. There are very few brain biopsies available. Of the ones that have biopsy, it's usually because the brain MRI was abnormal during COVID. In those cases, the virus hasn't been identified. So at least in biopsies, we have an identified virus. So that leaves us with autopsy. Now you can imagine autopsy is a very specific set of scenarios. It's the most severe disease. It's the most severe of the severe. So it's on this very edge of a spectrum. And in those cases, there have been about 150 to maybe now about 200 individual cases reported for COVID-19 that have brain findings published. Now that is maybe shocking to everybody considering the number of people who have died from COVID-19 is astronomically high. So in the United States, we've well passed our 500,000 individuals. And so we don't have a lot of brain autopsies in comparison to the number of people who have died. But of those people who have died and in the people that have had and specifically looked for SARS RNA, so nucleic acid, or antibody, the majority, about 98% of those autopsies do not identify antibody. There are a couple of cases, series, so there's two that have suggested that they can identify antibodies to SARS-CoV-2, and those are antibodies both to the nucleocapsid protein as well as the spike protein. And so in those cases, those are the outliers, but they have identified it in brain tissue. It's a little more challenging when you're talking about what specific cell type, what specific CNS resident cell type they've identified it in. It's a much more murky with RNA. So people do find RNA, in fact, in brain tissue. The problem has been to challenge is where did that RNA originally come from? Autopsies are notoriously dirty. They notoriously have blood intermixed with tissue. And unless you can identify a CNS resident cell with RNA, it's uh, very hard to say what's the source. But there have been case series which do find RNA inside the brain, very clearly stating that they're very low levels. A lot of the time it's in the setting of blood-brain barrier disruption and they are not sure where it came from. So I think the autopsy data is very helpful to state that if there is virus in the brain, it is extremely rare. So it doesn't help explain the majority of symptoms that include headache, the dizziness, the insomnia. It would be challenging to attribute neuroinvasion for. The majority of patients' symptoms. When it actually can occur, does it occur, like just the question of could it occur, that's still up for a debate.
2: Whoa, I take back what I said about this question being a closed case.
3: Correct, and you're not alone. Since this research topic became widely studied, there have been multiple reviews highlighting the mixed results of autopsy and other human clinical studies. With some cohorts displaying high prevalence of viral infection and damaged brain tissue or cerebral spinal fluid, while others report largely negative viral detection results.
2: Interesting. But this doesn't solve the problem. It raises more questions. If the virus isn't getting into the brain, then what's the basis for all these neurological symptoms?
3: Don't worry. As I'm sure you can imagine, neurotropism isn't the virus's only option when it comes to messing with the brain.
2: What do you mean, Miranda?
3: Well, stay tuned, because when we return, we're going to take a step back and look at these neurological symptoms from a systemic pathology perspective. That is, we're going to look at the potential ways for SARS-CoV-2 to indirectly affect the brain, some of which might surprise you.
2: Welcome back to Inside the Mind of COVID-19 Neurobiology Edition. Before the break, we were discussing how the neurological symptoms elicited by the SARS-CoV-2 virus may be due to direct viral entry into the brain. However, as we found throughout our research and discussion with Dr. Mukherjee, evidence for this neuroinvasive property is inconsistent at best. So now we're going to explore the obvious next question. How might the virus affect the brain without actually getting inside? Here's Katie to help us explore the problem.
1: Hey, Andre. Yeah, you're right. It definitely seems like neuroinvasion can't really account for all the clinical cases and neurological symptoms we see in patients. But like Miranda referred to earlier, there's more than one way for a virus to damage the brain apart from direct infection.
2: What do you mean, Katie?
1: So one of the things we do know about COVID-19 is that the symptoms aren't restricted to the respiratory tract. There can be a systemic response that occurs within a disease context where the brain is deprived of certain factors or is vulnerable to a systemic immune response. But as Dr. Mukherjee explains, these systemic effects are a lot more difficult to measure.
0: The direct is sort of a easy or not easy answer, actually, because it's either theoretically we have this concept and hypotheses of what you have to, you know, what hurdles you have to overcome. To say something's direct. It's much easier if you actually see the, the virus in front of you, then you know you're, you're dealing most likely with direct. The absence of that makes it much more challenging.
2: Okay, but what clues lead us to believe that indirect brain damage is relevant to COVID symptoms?
1: Okay, so let's go back a little bit and take another look at those autopsy studies that we mentioned earlier on. Because researchers aren't just looking for the virus itself, but also at the kinds of brain damage that appear to affect the brains of COVID patients and where this damage occurs? I think a little bit. Hypoxic ischemic damage is
0: probably the pattern that's people seen the most. Microvascular pathologies is probably the most dominant in autopsy series. When you're looking at MR-related data, so MRI, again, majority of those individuals are probably critically ill or severe at least. Other places to think about is we see hemorrhage, micro hemorrhages that you can identify. Those are a little more unique in different locations than what you would imagine for other pathologies that are associated with hemorrhages. So let's say amyloid angiopathies are the most common. So the, these little micro hemorrhages people are seeing are largely in the white matter, splenium, corpus callosum kind of areas that you can identify that's slightly unique and viruses will do this, but other, other etiologists will give you that kind of look sort of this micro hemorrhage related areas in splenium or corpus callosum. So those are the things that people are seeing. So that's not really a specific, I see things in the medulla pons that can help explain respiratory or lack of drive, or it's not very super specific to, oh, the cognitive fatigue is definitely assume, assuming to be Frontal pathology of some sort or hippocampal, for example, for memory related concerns.
1: So, what's important to note here, Andre, is that many of these autopsy studies, including some of those we referred to earlier, have found evidence of this sort of circumscribed brain damage without any virus being present in the tissue itself. There's also the fact that certain kinds of brain damage that you would expect in the context of direct infection are missing.
0: So the vast majority of symptoms that people are experiencing are more likely to be indirect than direct. That would be my hypothesis for, again, the average individual, in large part because of several things. One, for the average individual who's come in, we don't see a, a meningitis or encephalitis, meaning inflammatory cells, either inflammatory CSF, or really a large preponderance of inflammation in, this, in the brain parenchyma, which is rare for our RNA virus, a virus that's come in that is foreign to us not to produce some sort of inflammatory response. So the direct infection is going to be very rare.
1: Again, this lack of localized inflammation that you would normally find in tissue directly infected by the virus provides a hint that we have to look elsewhere for the cause.
2: So Katie, what mechanisms might be at play here?
1: Well, that was also something we sought to ask Dr. Mukherjee about, and she gave us an idea of some of the theories floating around the literature. And so what is the indirect effect?
0: Well, I think that's largely also hypothesis, right? That is speculation. People have argued, is it the oxygenation question, right? You know, not everybody has a smart watch that's directly assessing their pulse ox every every minute. And so is there any sort of oxygenation related questions that are sort of damaging the brain that you don't or do, can or cannot see? That's one.
2: So she's essentially saying that the lack of oxygen, large resulting from the respiratory effects of the virus, can in turn have impacts on the brain?
1: Yeah, and it's important to remember that while the brain is super complex, it is also very metabolically expensive and so being depleted of oxygen, even for short periods of time, can result in neuronal cell death. So low oxygen levels in the brain are directly related to the severity and occurrence of something called hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, which is really hard to say, um, but it describes brain tissue damage caused by low oxygenation. And it is also strongly linked to cerebral microvascular injury, or damage to blood vessels of the brain that we see in many COVID autopsies.
2: Is that the only mechanism that might be at play here? Surely there are other things a virus like this can do to the body that might affect the brain.
1: Yeah, there are other theories as well. And one of the more popular ones that scientists have proposed is that your immune system may go into overdrive, becoming dysregulated and wind up doing more harm than good. The other
0: have been the discussion about inflammation. It's usually on the concept of inflammatory cytokines, this concept of cytokine storm. In general, we have zero data on the people that were not hospitalized. All those individuals that were infected were symptomatic but did not make criteria to be hospitalized. I was wondering if you're going to go to the, the peripheral system. In that, there's actually a lot less been defined. There's several groups that have tried to define it. The leading hypothesis is actually that individuals do have inflammation peripherally. So they'll have some sort of elevation, potentially of, let's say cytokines like IL-6 or, or CRP, acutely in a hospital setting. And in that case, in those settings, you can see sort of muscle um injury related to that, and it looks like it's in a pattern that's not dissimilar to other interferon-related myopathy.
1: So the cytokine storm that Dr. McCurdy mentioned refers to an over-activation of immune cells that causes elevated levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines, like interleukin-6, interleukin-1 beta, tumor necrosis factor alpha, and this can lead to not only severe pneumonia in the lungs, but have many effects in the brain as well. These include increased blood coagulation and clotting that may lead to stroke, blood brain barrier disruption, high intracranial pro-inflammatory cytokines, microglial activation, and endothelial cell damage in the brain, which is really, really bad.
2: Whoa. Whoa. So it seems like the body's defense system can wind up doing more harm than good.
1: Exactly. And that's why we really, really need more research on this topic. Because in this case, the best thing to do may be in fact to suppress the immune system and prevent it from going haywire.
2: Interesting. And certainly a bit counterintuitive.
1: For sure. And as with the previous question of direct effects, It's really not settled science that these indirect mechanisms are the main cause of the neurological symptoms that are remaining so elusive. In general, we have zero data
0: on the people that were not hospitalized. All those individuals that were infected were symptomatic but did not make criteria to be hospitalized. We also don't have any of their lab data to understand what it was like for them and if there's any implications there. But I will say this, that whatever indirect effects, there may be some that are COVID-specific or there may be something that's not COVID-specific but viral-specific or infectious-specific. If you were to ask me what I would go with, I think I would actually frame my questions those ways. How much does hypoxia contribute? How much does the cytokine storm or any sort of cytokine dysregulation contribute? How much does... Any brain-related data contribute? Is there continued inflammation in the CNS or is there inflammation in the CNS? So all of these, I think, are up for play, are absolutely up for play. So those are my um, statements. It's all speculative, none, none definitive.
2: Of course, collecting more data is never a bad thing, especially when it comes to a brand new virus that may have properties we've never encountered before.
1: Right. And while we can draw our own knowledge of previous pandemics when it comes to tackling this one, we will certainly be learning from SARS-CoV-2 for years to come.
2: As a clinician, I would think it's a constant battle for Dr. Mukherjee to keep up with the amount of information we are learning every day.
1: Yeah, she she gave us an amazing perspective on what it's like to be in the thick of this pandemic. But what has been
0: extremely palpable and sort of challenging is how much fear there was, especially in the beginning of going into a scenario, knowing your friends have gotten infected. The challenge has been the narrative that you will get recover and things will get better. And then having that narrative completely reverse course. And for these individuals, their narrative was that they did not improve. And the biggest challenge is then returning to work. People have had cognitive disability and, and debilitating fatigue. And you can imagine many of these individuals. I just think about, for example, for anybody on this call, you know, how much time have you put into your PhD? How much time have you put into your master's? How much have you dedicated your life? And how much of your master's and PhD define who you are? Right? So you are, you feel like you're a neuroscientist, you feel like that's who you are. And if someone were to say, you cannot be that anymore, like you can no longer be that and work, it is actually very striking for the majority of people who are women in, in my case, they've been told that, you know, being either a physician, one is an ICU critical care nurse, that they need to step away from that job at the moment until they can return or may not be able to return. And that fundamentally has been very difficult for them.
1: At this point of the interview Andre what really struck me was the reminder that there is a very human side to this pandemic both for healthcare workers on the front line and the patients they care for
0: to some extent i have i have mixed
1: feelings about
0: the term physicians and nurses and healthcare personnel as heroes in large part because it's this concept that they are superhuman, that everybody here is sort of wearing some sort of cape and has magical powers, and that we don't succumb to illness, where it is actually, you know, sort of a false narrative. What it ends up happening is when people do succumb to illness, they feel guilty about not helping their colleagues, they feel guilty about surviving when another colleague died. I think that That piece is not discussed enough for a lot of health care personnel that goes for EMT, that goes for a variety of different people that are fundamentally human. One particular patient I felt really terrible for was she said, you know, at least luckily, I only had my loss of smell and I haven't gotten it back, but I just, that's all I've got. But the problem for her was she's like, I fundamentally miss the smell of my daughter's hair. Like, I cannot smell it. And that is so painful to me. But she's every time saying it to me, but I can't feel that bad because I've had a colleague that, you know, and so I think that trauma is not a small part of this narrative. And, you know, we can talk about biology as much, but ultimately the pandemic is going to leave scars, irrespective of whether the virus was inside the CNS, outside the CNS and whether or not we ever find a sort of therapeutic, uh, some sort of therapy for SARS-CoV-2. That
1: was really sad to hear, Andre. And like Dr. Mukherjee said, it's a reminder that whatever the latest debate about the neurobiology of this virus entails, there is a real impact on people's lives that always needs to be kept in mind and it's the it's the well-being of patients and healthcare workers that always needs to remain the primary goal of the very basic research. Thank you so much Dr. Mukherjee for those parting words and for taking the time to speak with us today. It was absolutely a blast to meet all of you. I enjoyed this tremendously.
2: And with that, I think we'll wrap up today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Neurobiology episode. And we hope you tune in into the next episode, where we'll be taking a step back from the biology and delving into the psychological aspects of the pandemic and gain some perspective on the real human impact of this virus. This podcast series is brought to you by the first-year students of the McMaster Neuroscience Graduate Program. We'd like to thank Dr. Mukherjee for allowing us to get her insight into COVID-19, Miranda Green and Katie Sandoval for being our interviewers. We'd also like to thank Leanne Montero, Shania Alages-Warren, and Viti Patel for editing this episode. And I'm your host, Andre Alexei. And don't forget to join us in our next episode of Inside the Mind of COVID-19. A full transcript and the sources for the information presented in this episode can be found on